please turn to Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. We will stand for the reading of this portion of Scripture, Luke 13, 22 through 30. Hear now the living and abiding word of God. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God and indeed there are last who will be first and there are first who will be last. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer now. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you desiring that you would teach us through your word this evening. We are sobered by the words that we read here of our Lord Jesus Christ that come with great solemnity and importance. I pray that you would give us a sober-mindedness to receive these words, humble hearts to consider these words in application to ourselves, uh, that we would understand and believe and live in light of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, last time I had the opportunity to share the word from Luke, we were looking at the beginning verses of Luke chapter 13. And that was the section about Jesus saying, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It was the discussion that was taking place amongst the crowds about this terrible tragedy of the Galileans and what Pilate had done to them. We learned about how there seemed to be this detached kind of way about talking about this news. It it was a, a news item to discuss, but the people seemed to not be receiving the implications of it for themselves. And that's what Jesus points to. He presses upon them. And he says, you need to make application of this to yourselves. Don't just talk about bad things that happen to people out there. Consider the reality that one day all of us will face the judgment seat of God. And unless we repent, Jesus says, we will all likewise perish. And Jesus took that opportunity where there was this event being discussed to turn it to direct application to his hearers. Jesus does that sometimes in the Gospels. And sometimes people will come to Jesus bringing questions. Many questions are asked throughout the Gospels. Sometimes Jesus answers those questions directly, but I would say the majority of the time he redirects the question 
in a way that is penetrating to what the, hear, what the uh, questioner is actually uh, after and what they actually need to hear. And our Lord is the epitome of wisdom. In him dwell all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians says. So we know that when our Lord Jesus Christ turns the question back or changes the direction of the conversation, that it is done in perfect wisdom. He knows exactly what his hearers need to hear. And that is what Jesus does in this case. This whole section of Luke 12 and Luke 13, I see as a particularly urgent section of Luke. It seems that it is pressing upon the hearers of that day, especially the Jews in the terms of the immediate context, who were presuming upon their identity, who were not discerning the times. They were not aware of the need for them themselves to repent at the preaching of John and repent even more importantly at the preaching of Jesus. And so when a man comes to him asking this abstract question, he comes and says, will those who are saved be few? We don't exactly know his intention in bringing that question. But what is more important than answering the abstract question is that man and everybody around him answering the question for themselves, will you be saved? We could talk abstractly all day about the number of the elect and how many they're going to be and all the passages that talk about such things, but what was urgent was whether the people listening were going to enter the narrow gate, not whether some people out there are going to be saved. How foolish it would be to ask abstract questions about how many will be saved only to find at the end of your life that you weren't saved. You find yourself thrust outside of the kingdom, Jesus says, and you were just discussing this question the whole time, or questions like this. You weren't applying the word to yourself. And so this is a very sobering passage, and many of these passages are pressing upon us. This whole section, as I said, is pressing upon us. How do we respond to the word of God? So let's look at the question again and consider it in a bit more detail. Verse 22, and he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? As I said, it's not immediately apparent what is the intention of this questioner. He could have brought it in a a proud and wrong way, or it could have been a sincere question to some degree that was important to him. And whatever the intention of the questioner, Jesus knew what everybody around him needed to hear. You'll notice that there's a single person that asked the question, but Jesus says to them, it's not just to the man that asked the question, to them, because there's all this crowd around him and it's an opportunity to teach. As I said before, Jesus would often redirect questions. You remember when the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus said, tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they're all stuck in a quandary and they're stuck in the fear of man. Like, we don't know what to say. We might get the crowd angry. So we'll just say we don't know. And he says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Because their pride in bringing this question, their attempt to say we are the authority here was completely overturned by the wise questioning of Jesus. Jesus would sometimes do this in other cases. There's the man that comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what does the law say? 
press this man to consider the answer to the question. Maybe this man already knows some of the answer to the question. Maybe this man needs to consider his soul in light of the law of God and be humbled. And so as I said before, when Jesus redirects a question or does not give a direct answer, it is done with complete wisdom, perfect wisdom. And there are times in which we need to do the same thing that Jesus does. We, of course, do not have infinite wisdom. But to the degree that we grow wise, like our Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes questions are brought to us and we do need to know how to answer them, how to direct them. And in this case, you'll notice the grammar shift. A question is asked, and if it was to be answered straightforwardly, it would come in the form of an indicative statement, okay? So if, if the question was, will those who are saved be few? A direct answer would be a yes or no answer, wouldn't it? It would be yes, those who are saved will be few, or it would be no, uh, there'll be many who are saved, or something to that effect. Jesus doesn't do that here. He answers a question with a command. Isn't that interesting? There's a question asked, and the command is, strive to enter at the narrow gate. Now, because Jesus does not straightforwardly answer the question, I'm not going to make an attempt to answer the question for you tonight, because that would be to miss the very drift of the passage. I could, I could take time with that, or we could try to hash out this question of those being saved, or few, or many. I'm not going to do that. I will resist the temptation that I could have to try to answer that question from a biblical standpoint and lean into the exhortation Jesus gives us. This was a question that was discussed amongst the Jews. There were these different schools of thought. Some, some of the Jews were extremely restrictive. They were thinking only the Jews will be saved and only a very small number of the Jews will be saved. Others amongst the Jews said, well, there's all these passages in Isaiah about the Gentiles and the nations coming to, to the Lord. We read that in Isaiah 55 just now. It says, the nation who did not know to you shall run to you. So there were these prophecies, of course, about a great number being saved. But the problem, perhaps, with the question, the problem any of us can have sometimes when we bring abstract questions out is, are we making application of the question to ourselves? It's possible that this man came with a sort of presumption. I can't say this for sure, but consider the possibility. Maybe he came and he said, maybe he's thinking in his mind, I know I'm good, but what about the rest of the world? How many are going to be saved? I mean, I'm good, I don't... I don't need to consider this question myself, but I'm interested to know, are there going to be many saved or few? Sometimes we can ask questions like that. We can come bringing some question of Scripture, and it might have some relevance, but if we don't apply it to ourselves, we're missing the point. And as I, as I said, the fundamental question was, will you be saved? Will you enter the narrow gate? Will you strive with all your might to enter in at that very difficult gate that our Lord Jesus Christ describes? So let's look now at the exhortation of verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Our Lord Jesus, in numerous times in the Gospels and in the Gospel of Luke as well, often speaks about the high cost of discipleship. He is pressing upon his hearers to recognize the cost it will take 
to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about the end of Luke 9 and all these people come to Jesus and they have excuses as to why they can't follow him immediately. Remember the man that comes and says, I'd like to follow you, Jesus, but I need to go home and bury my father. Sounds like a nice thing to do. Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. But as for you, go and preach the kingdom of God. And then the other man says, well, I have some other business to take care of, Jesus. And he says, anybody that looks back after putting their hand to the plow is not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus tells his own disciples, and and earlier in Luke, he says, if you're going, anyone who would follow me must take up their cross daily, deny self, and follow me. This is the call of discipleship, and Jesus pressed these kinds of things to weed out all the false professors of people that would come to him and say, I believe in you, Jesus. Many of the Jews at times would do that. And Jesus is pressing upon them in order to expose the reality or lack thereof when it came to their faith. This is one of those examples of the high call of discipleship. He's saying, strive to enter through the narrow gate. And the parable of the sower gives us some warnings about this. You remember the different soils in the parable of the sower, sometimes called the parable of the soils. And there's different responses to the word. There's the response of the rocky ground, for example. When the word is proclaimed, what is the effect, Jesus says? People receive it with joy for a time until difficulty comes, until persecution comes, and, and then they fall away, and the word does not take root, and it does not bear fruit. And so because of that, we need to consider this passage in application to ourselves. We think, am I striving to enter at the narrow gate? That's Jesus' command to us here. And what does it mean to strive to enter the narrow gate? And let's think about that word, strive. It is a very, very strong word that Jesus uses when he gives this command. It is the Greek word agonizomai. And if you heard the word agony in there, you were right to narrow in on that. That is, of course, where we get our English word agonize over something. And it's used different ways in the New Testament. It's used, of course, to strive or to make an effort, make a very intense effort. But it also is used sometimes to even mean fight. So, for example, when Paul says, I have fought the fight, I have finished the race, that is the word, agonizomai. I have agonizomide the fight. I have done these things. I have struggled in the Christian life to fight in this Christian battle. And so this word involves intense effort, a full, wholehearted commitment to enter in at the narrow gate. We can say that this involves a kind of holy violence. That's something that uh, I think it was Thomas Watson uh, used as a phrase, holy violence to enter the kingdom of God. And there is that passage our Lord says, I think it's in Matthew 11, where he says the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And part of the application made from that is that to take the kingdom of God involves a kind of appropriate holy violence. And so that leads us to the question of self-examination. Does my life evidence a strenuous effort to follow Jesus Christ? Strenuous. Is there a holy violence in my pursuit of eternal life, in my pursuit of fellowship with God and the joys of heaven and the joys of the Christian life right now? Do I strenuously pursue these things? Consider Jonathan Edwards' resolution. He wrote these resolutions when he was a young man. 
I think he wrote 30 when he was young, and then he kept adding to them over the years. He ended up with about 71 of them, and, and they're pretty intense. And one of them, number 22, is this. He says, Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the world to come as I possibly can. He's thinking in terms of rewards in heaven. Then he says, To accomplish this, I will use all the strength, power, vigor, and vehemence, even violence, I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. He's saying, I'm seeking the joys of heaven, and I'm going to exert my whole being into the pursuit of those things. Violence, vehemence, power, vigor. What does this look like in the day-to-day experience of the Christian? And as you think about a, a verb like strive to enter the narrow gate, you need to think about how does that fit with this, the biblical teaching that salvation is by grace through faith alone. We think, how does this effort to enter the narrow gate fit with the freeness of our salvation, this free grace salvation that is bestowed upon us by faith? How do those go together? Well, we know they go together. Our Lord Jesus does not contradict himself, and the, the, the Bible does not contradict itself. And here is what I would say in answer to how those go together. A saving faith that trusts in Christ alone for salvation is a faith that works by love, which is what Paul teaches, right, in Galatians. Circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't matter, but a faith that works by love. Paul cannot envision a faith that does not work by love. It is always accompanied with these saving graces. And faith that works by love is a, is a lively faith. It has life in it. It's not dead. Because the man or woman that has been given the gift of faith is a person that is alive to the things of God. And Luther, when he described the vitality of faith, he said, faith is a busy, active, and mighty thing. True disciples will be evidenced by a strenuous pursuit of glory. Now, all along the way, they'll know that God's bestowal of glory is not gained by their works but they will be zealously pursuing that glory that God has promised. Philippians 3, I think, is helpful in this regard. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Listen to what Paul says. He says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. You notice that Christ had to lay hold of Paul first for Paul to start pursuing laying hold of something. He says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Sounds much like, I think, what Jonathan Edwards was saying. He's pressing on. He's diligently, strenuously pursuing the promise of glory. And he's living his life like he believes these things. And so we say the same thing. We say, Christ has laid hold of me. Now I'm going to lay hold of the promises of God in Christ and run with them. And so this strenuous effort to enter the narrow gate is a lively faith in God, a zealous repentance from sin, and an earnest dedication to the life of discipleship. No matter what the obstacles are, you're saying, I'm going through that narrow gate. Nothing's going to stop me because Jesus Christ has laid hold of me. And when there are things getting in the way of running the race of faith, you will cast them aside 
because you are earnestly striving to enter the narrow gate. You're saying, I can't carry this. I can't take this with me. That's not going to fit through the narrow gate. I'm going to toss that aside. And when you are tested, you will be only more determined to press on because Jesus has laid hold of you. Now, let's give our attention also to the other pictures of this passage. Jesus gives us the command, but then he gives us what many consider a parable of sorts. It's a picture for us. And I believe it is a picture of the day of judgment, verses 25 through 27. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There's many echoes here of what we find in Matthew 25 on the day of judgment. And Matthew 7, when Jesus had the people come to him and they said, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. It's much like the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. There was the five virgins that had the oil. They were ready for the, the master's return. And so when the wedding day came, they said, we're ready. They went right in. And then what, what of the other five virgins that did not have the oil? The door was shut. It was too late. There was no way of entrance any longer. And I see that this passage is connected to how we began the chapter, this call to repentance, that our Lord Jesus Christ is reminding his, the present generation and then us by application tonight that there is a limited amount of time that one day the door will be shut. We talked about this last time in terms of the limitation of each of our lives, that we all have a certain number of days assigned to our lives And I described our life like an hourglass, like that hourglass in which the sand goes through and eventually that final piece of sand falls through and there's no more time at that point. There's there's that standpoint, our own lives ending, we come before the judgment seat of God, we give an answer for what we've done. There's also the judgment day, the, the final day of all human history, which I think is envisioned here in this passage, when the door will finally be closed. And Jesus says that on that day, there are going to be people, they're going to be knocking on the door, saying, Lord, let us in, let us in, Lord. Will we hear the words, I never knew you? Or as that door is about to be closed, will we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? Enter into the joy of your master. You see, this, this warning from our Lord is a warning against presumption. These are people that used these arguments of presumption as they, as they tried to argue with Jesus about why they should be let in, it seems. They say, we ate and drank in your presence, Lord. And he sa- they say, you taught in our streets, we were around you. Now, there's a very real application to the present generation of Jesus' hearers, right? They had actually, physically at times, ate and drank with Jesus. And they had seen Jesus in their streets as they walked the the different parts of Galilee or Jerusalem. Jesus was teaching in their streets. But what if they never received the message? If there had not been a response, a believing response to the preaching of the kingdom of God, a turning to to Christ, a believing that he is the savior of the world, 
They were going to hear one day Jesus say, I never knew you. It doesn't matter that you ate and drank. We ate and drank with some proximity together or you heard us, you heard me. That didn't matter. How relevant this is for us, brothers and sisters, when we are in proximity to the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves. We, most of us here, eat and drink at the Lord's table every week. We hear Jesus' teaching from this pulpit. But salvation does not come by proximity. It is not saving to be around Jesus in the sense of around his teaching and, or even partaking of the Lord's Supper doesn't save you automatically. It doesn't have that effect. If you're just not receiving it with faith, it, it does not benefit you. And some people have this presumption. They, they say, I, I, I know about the Christian faith. I've heard these things. I, I even perhaps go to church regularly. You're not saved by knowing about Jesus. You're saved by believing in him. You're not saved because somebody you knew as a Christian, your uncle twice removed, had a conversion experience once, and you're kind of banking on him being sufficient entrance for you. It doesn't work that way. You're saved by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. You repent of your sins. You call on the name of the Lord. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. And that new life, granted by the powerful working of God's Spirit, it will awaken in you a new way of life. You will be committed to this life of discipleship. You will be strenuously pursuing the narrow gate. And by God's mercy, you will indeed reach that narrow gate and you will enter in. And you will reach the heavenly country by the mercy and grace of God. But let us be warned by our Lord's words. Is it possible that any of us here have been in proximity to the gospel and we have not received it? Is it possible? Such was the reality in Jesus' generation. How many of Jesus' hearers were presuming upon their family lineage? How many were presuming that we are Abraham's children? They were not awakened to the reality of judgment right around the corner. How many of them realized what was going to take place in AD 70 and all the judgments that would follow at that point? They were not, as Jesus says, discerning the times. And for us, it is for us an application to these chapters that we have been in together to discern the times. Of course, lately, we as a church, we've dealt with more church discipline situations than at any time in in our past. We've had many hypocrisies brought to light. We are being providentially warned by God. We are being called to an authentic Christian life. We are being called to a life of true faith, a life of real discipleship to a real Christ because there is a real heaven and there is a real hell. There is a real day of judgment and we will all come to that day. And so I ask you, where do you stand tonight? When the door is closed on that final day, will you be inside the house? Or will it be like the generation of Noah who mocked Noah for so long, but when that door of salvation was closed... They had to knock and claw at the door, but there was, no, there was no way. There was no ark. They had missed the opportunity. Now, our Lord gives us these fearful warnings in verses 28 through 29. He says, 
There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and from the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. Our Lord is describing something of the horror of hell. He often uses this language of weeping and gnashing of teeth, this horrific description to describe what is eternal judgment like. It is a place of unutterable anguish, of a sorrow that never ends. It is not only a place of grief and regret, but it is also a place of anger and rage. And I say that because there's this gnashing of teeth, there's this anger, and we wonder, well, will people be repentant in hell? No, they're still defying God after all of that. This gnashing of teeth, this rage, this this sadness, this despair. And Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels, he says, there is an unbridgeable chasm between heaven and hell. He says that in Luke 16, in that parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And Abraham speaks to the rich man, and he says, there is a gulf fixed between these two places, and it cannot be bridged. The man wants some help. He wants the cooling of his, his tongue from the flames. He wants somebody to go warn his brothers. And, Jesus says that, and Abraham says that as Jesus tells this parable, there's no, there's no bridging of those two places. It's, it's unbridgeable chasm. You're either there or there. And what Jesus envisions is a sober warning to the present generation of the Jews. They so respected their great patriarchs, right? How much pride could have been taken in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And they think, we'll be there one day, we'll sit in the kingdom of God, we'll see the patriarchs resurrected, we'll be there on that day. And Jesus says, it won't be quite like you think it's going to be. There's going to be people that you never thought coming. They're going to be coming from all over the world. All these other nations will be coming. All of the Gentiles will be sitting down with the patriarchs of Israel. And he says, you might be just thrown out of the kingdom. You who thought that you would sit next to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you who presumed that that was your place, you may not be there. This is a a fulfillment of prophecy. I I was looking at some of the prophecies of Isaiah. We read Isaiah 59, but Isaiah 25, verse 6, is actually a fascinating prophetic description that I think Jesus is giving reference to, maybe not directly this passage, but he's giving reference to this event. Isaiah 25, verse 6, reading from the ESV version, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He was saying that on the mountain of the Lord of hosts, there was going to come a day where this great feast was going to be put out and all the nations were going to come in. This is a prophecy of the coming in of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture for us who are Gentiles. And so it again is this warning of Maybe you are not where you think you are. And that's how this section ends in verse 30. It says, And indeed there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. It's a divine reversal of what's expected. Jesus would say these kinds of things throughout the Gospels. It's a reversal of what people anticipate, perhaps by means of their pride or presumption, about themselves. 
the Jews might have thought they were first in line for salvation. They, they might have thought that we, above all, receive the greatest inheritance. We're God's people. But they would find that the tax collectors and the prostitutes would end up going in before them at times. That happened during Jesus' ministry. Whereas he's in Zacchaeus' household and says, today salvation has come to this house, to this evil tax collector man. But then when he's in the household of the other Pharisees that we studied, what does he say? He says, woe to you. That's what he had to say to them. Now, the original targets of of Jesus' warnings, it's clearly the Jews in view here in terms of who is to receive this warning. And he's talking about divine reversals happening. You know, the first will be last, the last will be first. It won't be like you expect on the final day. And what I would say to us tonight is it's almost like another reversal is happening from a historical standpoint. What if it has been, you know, the nations of the Western world, and America in particular thinks, and it seems to have been, we're first in the kingdom of God in the sense that we are a, you know, a believing nation, we've had this great Christian heritage. It seems like we above all people, someone might think, should be first. But what if we're last? Or more, more seriously, what if we're not in at all? You know, there's the first and the last. They could talk about you know, a line of people going into the kingdom of God in different orders, but what if you don't even make it in? That's what Jesus says. You could be thrust out of the kingdom. And so Paul, in Romans 11, of course, he warns the Gentiles about their own possible presumption, right? He says, okay, yes, the Jews, many of them unbelieving, they've been broken off this, this tree, but he says, don't you get proud, Romans 11, verse 19, he says, You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. He's thinking, don't say that pridefully, like you're something big to be grafted into this tree. He says, well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, but you, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. He says, you're not even the natural branches. You're a Johnny-come-lately into the olive tree, and if you don't believe, you, you could be cast off as well. And so what I would draw this to application for us, brothers and sisters, we could, of course, talk about America, we could talk about the Western world. I do think there's a divine reversal happening where you know, the many Christian nations are probably going to have to come be evangelized by the other nations eventually, even though they had all this heritage. And those who seem to have been first will end up being last, and they'll keep, these reversals keep happening. How does this speak to us? it warns us against any pride or any presumption that we are tempted to indulge in. If any of us are giving way to that pride and presumption and assumption about our condition, especially when it comes to any sort of externalistic marker that we take our pride in, Paul would tell us, do not be haughty, but fear. And so as we consider this passage, may each and every one of us then Fear the living God as we read these descriptions. May we know as we read the descriptions of eternal judgment, the reality of his holiness, his justice, and may we take it seriously. And then as we consider that, may each and every one of us earnestly strive to enter by the narrow gate. And may each of us know with certainty that Christ is our Savior. May we know with certainty by the assuring of the Holy Spirit that we have been redeemed from our sins. 
May we know the power of his blood. May we know the power of his resurrection and that Christ is ours and we are his. This is something that you must know, brothers and sisters. You need to be able to answer that question with certainty. And thanks be to God, the promise of Scripture is that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, brothers and sisters, as I said, this is a sober passage for us. May we receive it soberly. May we consider these things. As we continue to go through this chapter, even the last part of Luke 13 is going to once again come with that same kind of tenor. And so the Lord clearly has much to teach us in this, uh, the providential timing of us being in Luke 12 and Luke 13. So let us lean into that. Let us receive this as God's word for us at the present. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, which speak with such urgency and force and importance to us tonight. We thank you for the warnings that awaken us to flee from the wrath to come and find our lives hidden with Christ in God by putting our trust in the Messiah and turning from our sins unto you. And I ask that you would awaken each of us tonight who are hearing this word in order to soberly consider ourselves in light of this passage, and that each of us would make that strenuous effort to enter in at the narrow gate and so be saved. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.